I've been designing supercomputers my whole career. We're completely prepared for this. We actually serve petabytes of data. That was Brewster Kale. Oh my gosh, I had such a great time putting together this podcast. And he was talking about the massive amounts of data on the Internet Archive at a special website, archive.org, and also something called the Wayback Machine. Now, if you've never heard about archive.org and you've never heard about the Wayback Machine, oh my gosh, on this episode of Commando on Demand, you're going to love it. You're going to hear about Brewster's vision to create the world's largest public library, the Library of the Internet. And this is the crazy part. You're going to learn how your family's videos, books, and documents can actually become part of this vast library. Because from Commando.com and Podnet.com, that's our podcast network, this is Commando On Demand, where we talk to industry movers and shakers. We keep you up to date on everything digital. You can actually get new episodes every Wednesday and every Friday, so be sure that you subscribe. And for more podcasts like this, just search Commando wherever you get your podcasts. And that's with a K, of course. We're going to get started in a moment, but first, I'd like to thank our partners who help make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Universal access to all knowledge is within our grasp we could actually achieve the great vision of everything ever published, everything that was ever meant for distribution, available to anybody in the world that's ever wanted to have access to it. Okay, welcome back. Now, if you ask Brewster Kale who he is, he'll tell you, well, I'm an internet librarian. I'm an advocate of public access to knowledge. Okay, he is all that. But he's also the founder of the Internet Archive and its Wayback Machine. But his achievements go way back. Aha, yeah, see what I did right there? (laughs) Brewster Kale made his fortune in the early days of the Internet, back when America Online, AOL, was a household name, and Amazon was just a little tiny bookstore online operating out of a garage in Seattle, Washington. You see, Brewster developed the first publishing system on the Internet that allowed any publisher to make content available to anybody who had a browser. Well, he sold that to, guess who? Yes, America Online. And that company was called Waze, which has nothing to do with the Waze that we know as far as the whole GPS and navigation system and that little app that tells us where the cops are hiding out. Well, a few years later, Brewster developed technology that cataloged content on the web to better develop it to people when they start looking for things, when they were searching for stuff. He sold that technology to Amazon. Yes. Brewster called that product Alexa, which is funny because it has nothing to do with the Alexa that we know now. So in this podcast, we're going to speak with Brewster about archive.org and the Wayback Machine. And you want to make sure that you listen to the very end because... Well, Brewster's got this really great way that you can contribute your family's digital assets to the library of the Internet. You don't want to miss that. Hi, Brewster. Hi, Kim. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, this is so cool. I was looking at your background and America Online. You know, I actually started the computer section on America Online. Wow, fantastic. Many, many, many moons ago, if you did keyword commando, you ended up at their whole computer thing. (laughs) And it was going really well for many, many years. And I was making a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, one day they called me up. Do you remember Ted Leonis's? Oh, very, very well. Okay. So uh, Ted called me up and he said, you know all that money that we're paying you? And I said, yeah. Sometimes like 40 grand a month. They said, all that money that we're paying you, uh, now you should be paying us. Yeah. (laughs) 
that was the flip. AOL had this wonderful thing, and they had a royalty model. They took um, of the uh, $6 an hour that people would be paying to be on America Online, they took often 10%, 15% of that and gave it back upstream to those that made the content that Correct. people wanted to, to see. I love the royalty model. And then they flipped it to be in the ad model. Yes. And I think the ad model, What I, I love that line, is the original sin of the internet. And I think that was actually a, a really bad move. AOL could have been the internet um, right. and, and kept that royalty model. And that's why I sold uh, my company to AOL was to help build that out because I saw the whole growth of books through the last few centuries. And I really like that model, unlike the radio, television, newspaper models that tended towards winner takes all. Um, and ad-based models tend to have you know, particular features to them that we're seeing play out on the internet. So AOL originally had a different model, and I loved that, and I wish they'd really stuck with it, and that was what I joined them to do. When they turned out to not do that, it wasn't as good a match. It was a fascinating time. It was a really interesting time because, like you said, if you created the content, then you got a percentage of the revenues back because you created compelling content that people wanted to read and they wanted to interact with. And one of the big things that I launched was one of the first tech support forums on America Online. So if you had a computer question, you could go to this whole section on AOL and leave a computer question, right? Yes. And I didn't realize when I flipped the switch on a Thanksgiving Day morning how popular this would be. <laughs> and it was like, I remember my father saying, you know, it's dinner. I'm like, oh, my God, I just got like a thousand questions in the last hour. It was nutso. Oh, and it was so fun because when we got the AOL community, there was a gateway to the Internet. And I was doing a system called Waze, Wired Air Information Servers. It came before the World Wide Web. It was the first publishing system on the Internet. And so it allowed all sorts of publishers to come online on their own terms and make things available. And there was this gateway from AOL into the Internet, into Gopher. And you know, the folks on the Internet, oh, no, all these newbies, these AOLers yes. are coming in. It's going to spoil the system. Yes, you're right. But I it, forgot no, about it, that. You're right. Yes. But it was tremendous that the level of energy and, and enthusiasm, people that just had dial-up. They weren't at universities or at big companies where they had the ARPANET. It was a grand opening. And I just love the idea that we we're going to be able to have publishers on their own terms be able to try to make money by publishing on the open internet. That was the opportunity. And then it evolved uh, and we evolved away from that royalty model, which I said is, you know, it's sort of real shame because I think it could have made a very different internet from the sort of the Facebook or Google oriented uh, internet that we have today into one that's more like the internet archive or Wikipedia or sort of classic subscription-based publishing or royalty-based like book publishing could have made a much bigger mark going forward. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned the Wayback Machine and archive.org. And sometimes I'll go back there and I can see what my hair looked like in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a little little much, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you go back and I'm like, whoa. I mean, I had like the whole Texas thing going on, but I was in Phoenix and from New York. I mean, what the heck? <laughs> Talk a little bit about how that started, because a lot of people, when they hear Alexa, they think yes. about the Amazon Echo Alexa, which was not really the original Alexa, right? Correct. Yes, I know. I've got this problem. I say, oh, you did Waze? Yes, but not that Waze. Or, oh, you did Alexa? 
Yes, but not that Alexa. So Alexa Internet was a company that was designed to try to help give information about the World Wide Web. We started by crawling the World Wide Web and keeping a copy and making the Wayback Machine. We sold that company to Amazon in 1999. Then years later, they reused the name, though Alexa Internet still exists. The talking widget is what people think of it as. But the idea of Alexa Internet was to catalog the World Wide Web to give other people mechanisms to move around and find where they should go based on the user trails of millions of users. So that was the idea of Alexa Internet. And what yielded out of that was the Wayback Machine that has continued to be uh, built and run by the Internet Archive, a nonprofit library that I now run. And it's a copy of old web pages. We collect lots and lots of web pages from lots and lots of websites and make it so that people can type in a URL and see past versions. They can even search now to be able to find old websites, even if they don't exactly remember what that blog's name was. They hopefully can start to find things that have been long off the internet. Trying to build out-of-print web page service. It's a classic library function. All right, coming up next, how far back does the Wayback Machine go? What are some of the more interesting things that people actually use it for? When I told my son Ian about this podcast, he immediately went to archive.org and looked up commando.com and he came running in the kitchen. He said, Mom, gosh, your hair was horrible in 1996. Stick around. We got a lot more fun facts you don't want to miss. Let me tell you something. My life is hectic between work and my family. I don't always have time to shop for myself. And that's why I'm super excited about Stitch Fix. Oh my God, this is so fun. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service. What's fabulous about it is that it finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories that will fit your body and budget and lifestyle. All you have to do is go to stitchfix.com slash Kim and you tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item because that's important. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick items to send right to your door. And I love this. You try them on, but you pay only for what you want to keep, what you really like, and then just return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required, too. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, and this is applied toward anything that you keep from your shipment. It's so easy to get set up. I can't wait to get my first box. Get started right now at stitchfix.com slash Kim, and you're going to get an extra 25% off when you keep all the items in your box. You have to try this out. It's so great. Stitchfix.com slash Kim. Okay, you're back. I just want to remind you that you can listen to new episodes of Commando On Demand every Wednesday and every Friday. You want to search wherever you get your podcasts for Commando with the letter K and one M, by the way, which I'm sure you know. And just because somebody asked me this this morning, right before I jumped in the studio, they said, hey, is Commando On Demand the Kim Commando show? No, silly. It's not the same thing. To get the Kim Commando show podcast, you have to go to getkim.com. But we're back with Brewster Kale. He's the founder of Archive.org and the Wayback Machine. So now this Wayback Machine, does it go back to what year? I think in 1996, is that correct? Yes, 1996 is when we did our first crawling. It was of the presidential elections of 1996. It was with the Smithsonian Institution. It was interesting. They said, you know, who knows? Maybe this Internet is going to become something. <laughs> and where, where they said, we have the first bumper sticker 
from the first campaign in our presidential memorabilia room, maybe we're going to need the first website. And so we worked with the Smithsonian, and that was just a great collaboration. Then we started working with the Library of Congress, and it's just gone on and on from there. That is really amazing. It's funny because when you said that this Internet's going to be something, real quick is when I started my radio show about technology, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That was in the early 90s. And I spoke with the then president of ABC Radio. And I said, you know, I want to do this show about technology and computers and the Internet. And the guy actually called me back after he listened to a show. And he said, I don't think many people be interested in technology. I I don't really think this is going to be anything. So that door closes. So you try somebody else. Right. And so I called the then president of CBS Radio. And I said, you know, I got the show and I gave him the whole pitch you know, about technology and computers. And the phone went silent for that pregnant pause. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh-huh. I'm thinking. And I don't want to say anything because I want to hear his feedback. And he said, you know, Kim, do you remember the pet rock? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He says, you know, the Internet is the pet rock. It's never going to be anything. It is just a fad. That's all it is. So that's why I had to start my own network, which in retrospect, that's why we're sitting in this 24,000 square foot broadcast center, you know, versus working for somebody else. Right. But looking at the history and going back when the Internet was just being developed, I understand the importance of the historical ramifications. And how do you see it? What is the significance of this? Well, for me, it all draws way back of of what the dream of the internet was, which for me, there's lots of dreams. Everybody has their own dream of how it's going to break through whatever the problems they're seeing. I wanted it to be the library of everything. Could we make the library of Alexandria version two? Could we make all the published works of humankind available to people permanently, no matter where they are, no matter what institutions they're in? They're curious enough. They want to have access. They can do it. That idea had been around for decades before 1980 when I was looking for something to do as a technologist and a utopian kind of idealist kind of guy. And I said, okay, well, I just try to build that. And so that I, I started off in 1980, like, okay, what do we need to do that? Well, we need computers that work. And so worked away on computers and then got search engines to go with gigabytes of information, which actually was a horrendously large amount of <laughs> yes. supercomputers that we developed. And Dow Jones and KPMG and Pete Marwick and Apple computers said, yeah, there is something to this idea of Ted Nelson's and Vannevar Bush, as we may think, let's run with this. And this internet thing was starting to happen. And we built a publishing system to try to get publishers on board, to try to make it so that they joined the open system, so that they could start making money by publishing on the internet, that they had a role rather than having everything go off into an aggregated uh, things like LexisNexis or Dialogue or Westlaw. And So this internet thing started to really come around in the early 90s. So I started the Waze Project in 1989, uh, having done the sort of computer thing for a while to get it so we could do search and and the like on those. And by the mid-1990s, we started to have enough publishers on board that I could switch around to build the library. That was always the dream. And by 1996, we had enough going, you know, it's enough momentum. It's like, okay, let's do that directly on and let's go and save it because the most fragile of media was the World Wide Web. The World Wide Web 
as great as it was, Tim Berners-Lee did a great job of keeping it very simple, is it didn't have any concept of history at all. And the average life of a web page is 100 days before it's either changed or it's deleted. Is that it? That's it. Wow. It's called pages as if it's like Gutenberg. But no, it's fleeting. It's like drawing things in the sand. It just it disappears. It mutates. It changes. And so we said, okay, let's crawl the World Wide Web. Let's go and write a robot that contacts every web page on every website and records what it sees and do that every two months to go back and forth, zip, 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 zip. And it's starting to get big. We've now got 600 organizations, 1,000 librarians are building Archivit collections, which is a service of the Internet Archive that goes and collects worldwide web pages that are in subject areas, focuses at the right frequencies to make sure that the record is kept. Because the record of this time is in digital. Yes, there's still printing going on, but it's in digital. It is. And so we're, we're really running with that. It's a whole bunch of bits and bytes. I'm sure you have some great stories about how people have used the Wayback Machine. Ah, yes. Can you share any of those with us? My favorites are usually end users that go and say, you know, I had this website way back when, and it's all gone because it was on GOCs or it was on this. <laughs> Angel uh, Fire. Uh, live, <laughs> Angel Fire, a live journal, MySpace. Gosh, on and on and on. And they come back and say, oh, but you have it. I love it. And I didn't back it up myself. Of course you didn't back it up because not only just backing it up is hard, it's how do you keep it alive and how do you keep it linked in with everything else? Because what we're building is a global brain here. We're building something that is much bigger than any one of ourselves. It's, it's an old interconnected thing and the idea of having it lost. So those are my favorite. We're getting a lot more use in the political-ish areas. I bet. As people are going into uh, new administrations, some of their past, uh, uh, sort of what they uh, had been publishing on, we have so many media pundits taking actual roles in the United States government now that often their backgrounds are, are really quite well published uh, on the World Wide Web, but in ways that they might have taken down since then. And so those being able to kind of understand the backgrounds of what's going on, it does require a, a, uh, a previous look. Well, I will tell you, Brewster, I do appreciate that I have copies of old versions of the website and that oh, I good. can go see it. It's kind of like a historical look back. And as your kids get older, they realize what mom does, right? And my son Ian came to me. He's like, you know, mom, your hair was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fashion is some of the things that's easiest to, to mark change, but there's also changes in how people talk about things and how long they've been talking about things. So I remember a radio program that was broadcast on the Internet in 1990, which was you know really early uh, for going and doing any of that. And we were talking about the use of ways, and it was a, a lot about climate change. Wow. It was global warming then, but it was all the same things. And so having a historical perspective – can give an anchoring that we're not just in a set of trends right now. Some of these things have been going on for a long time. So tell us some unusual ways that people use the Wayback Machine. Are there other uses that maybe our listeners right now aren't thinking of? I mean, certainly you can go back and you can see what a website looks like. You can see what Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or somebody else in the news and as a newsmaker may have written about or may have said in a particular, say, opinion piece on a website? Right. Well, we introduced a new feature called Save Page Now. 
So on web.archive.org, it's a free service. Web.archive.org is the Wayback Machine. You can go and put in a URL to go and say, this page is important. Save it right now. So it's sort of citizen archiving. And it turns out that lots of people started doing it and also robots. But it's now going at 80 pages per second. Wow. The people are going and saying, this is important. And there was one that was cited that was somebody bragging about shooting down a military airliner over the Ukraine and with some photos. And it turned out that it actually wasn't a military. It was actually a civilian aircraft full of a bunch of Dutch scientists. And so this post on some social media site was taken down fairly quickly. But five captures had been made during those hours that that uh, post had been up, including by people that were doing Save Page Now. And it was because that those have been saved that there was a smoking gun, that the denials that came out from that person's organization were discounted in the, at least in the international arena. So you, you get some people that are Sometimes, you know, caught saying the wrong things. And so that's an area that I find fairly interesting. That's fascinating. I think also people are using the Wayback Machine to try to record artworks that are increasingly done on the Internet. So people are doing interesting explorations of how do you go and make new art, whether it's not just video, but necessarily things that are interacting with other things that are around it. And can we uh, grow to go and archive these things well? Old tweets of you know, important people are um, increasingly sort of fluid as to sort of whether they're they're up uh, or not. So those are some of the things that I find interesting, but I think it's mostly people's personal histories Mm -hmm. as they're investing themselves in this great experiment in sharing, which is the World Wide Web. Can we go and build some of the reinforcing elements that make it so that it'll last longer than just being a fleeting thing? that we're really building something big here that's important to reinforce, that spend our lives and our fortunes. People are donating to the Internet Archive, to Wikipedia and the like. How can we go and make it so that it's a better resource as a generation and all of us now turn to our screens to answer questions? Do we have the right information there? Right. Or is it able to be faked? And I'm afraid that a lot of it's able to be faked And one of the things we can do to try to guard against that is to go and provide enduring permanence, uh, referenceability, so that you don't have a shifting nature underneath our culture. All right, still to come, try to imagine what it takes to store 330 billion web pages, plus, oh, I don't know, 20 million books. And how about 4 million videos? And, oh, I don't know, just for good measure, let's just throw in 4.5 million audio recordings. And, wow, just because we're really good at it, 1.5 billion web pages every single week. We're going to get to all that next, so stay right where you are. We have a quick message from our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. Now, if you are totally digging this Commando On Demand podcast, you got to do us a favor. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's the best way to let us know that we're bringing you topics that you love. Okay, back to Brewster Kale. He's a great guy. I mean, you can tell, right? Well, now I want to talk about how we are able to store such great information. It's a lot of pages. I'm looking at some numbers right now. I mean, archive.org, you're hosting 330 billion web pages. 
Yes. Okay, 20 million books. Yes. Four and a half million audio recordings. Yes. Four million videos, three million images, 200,000 software programs. You archive one and a half billion URLs every single week. Okay, how do you store all this? Ah, yes, I've been designing supercomputers my whole career. We're completely prepared for this. Uh, So we actually have computers. We, We bought a church in San Francisco. It's beautiful. And actually in this church, we actually have a lot of the primary copy of the Internet Archive. So on these servers, hard drives, they are here and they serve the global Internet through a very high speed dark fiber that goes to uh, the main switching point. And so we actually serve these petabytes of data. So peta is what comes after tera. So a peta is a thousand terabytes. And we have about 50 petabytes now of data. The World Wide Web is the largest, but the next down is television. We archive 61 channels of television 24 hours a day. Wow. DVD quality. And we then uh, make that into searchable collection that you can go and find what people said in U.S. television news and be able to clip and be able to use it as a reference. To think critically, we need to be able to quote, compare, and contrast. If you can't quote something that's happened and be able to hold on to it, then people can just make things up and it just flows over. And what's going on in television is they're just making things up. So let's be able to hold people to account and have everyone be able to go and say, no, come on. He really did say that. He's he's denying it now, but he did. And you can go to tv.archive.org and search and find those clips and then add that to your blog, your posts. And if you want the whole program, we print it onto a DVD and lend it to you. Wow. Because we're a library. Wow, that is something. So this is the, how do we gain take the wonders of the born digital materials, which allows everyone to be a publisher and How do you make that sort of fluid, wonderful world that we're in also still have the benefits of the library system, the kind of critical analysis and thinking that allows us to learn from history and not have it all just wash away like tears in the rain, as they said in Blade Runner. Let's go back to the Wayback Machine, okay? 2019 was a big year for copyrighted content. Yes. I mean, it was all over the Internet for all this stuff being released in the public domain. We've run a few stories about it on Commando.com. So do you have any favorites from that 1923 collection? Oh, yes. I mean, we're we're starting to see, you know, poems by Frost and um, Virginia Woolf. And we're soon going to see music. I've been really into 78 RPM records. Are you? Um, Wow. Yes. It's so great. Um, You know, because I I was kind of stuck listening to all the music that I listened to my teens and my 20s. And so we've been just digitizing these 78 RPM records and they're coming up and out. They're just wonderful. But I think it's a symbol. 1923 is good. But really, we need the whole 20th century available to this generation that it really isn't. It's locked up under this permanent copyright, even though we've got such an important century to make available, especially now with some of the changes in the political structures. If we don't learn from the 20th century, we're going to relive it. And there are some real things that we should learn. And I don't think it was authors or publishers trying to say, yeah, we should keep the 20th century away from everybody that's on there, that's learning through screens and on their phones. But that's in fact what it is we've done. So having 1923 come up is great. But really, we need 
the whole 20th century available. And we've got some really misguided efforts by people who are just trying to bury under permanent copyright these materials that are very important to see and to truly uh, experience. So 1923 is good. Terrific. I'm glad we've got some mm-hmm. uh, old poems by, by Robert Frost coming up. <laughs> but it's, it's all of the debates and issues that came around during the 20th century. So we can't stop here. We can't just wait another year to then have 1924. Think of all of the things that happened during the 20th century. Oh my gosh, it's mind-blowing. I mean, it really is. And, and if all of those are dead links, if those are things that you can't get to, if those are the vast majority of all of that's out of print, and it's oh, and it's not going to be redone in some way. And you're not going to truck down to your library and start taking out microfilm. It's just not going to happen. And so we need to go and take these materials and bring them back to a broad base of people that we know are interested. The wonder of the web is we know people are interested and interesting, and they are particular and they're peculiar. So let's give them the fodder. Let's give them all of these materials, whether it's 78 RPM records, the old newspapers, the books that are from the 20th century. We're digitizing these things up and lending them one copy at a time. Wow. So it's, it's kind of lame, um, but it at least is something that if you go to openlibrary.org, which is a free service by the Internet Archive that's really about books, you can borrow a book for two weeks, but while you have it, nobody else can be reading that digitized copy. So there's no more copies that are circulating around, but at least it can be somewhat seen. We'd really like to make it so that every Wikipedia footnote turns blue, turns into a link. But right now, the guidance on Wikipedia is to not cite things that aren't live links. So it's going dead. All of the literature from the 20th century is dead until we digitize it and make it somewhat available, like through this lending system. So I know you're talking about the Wayback Machine, but the Wayback Machine only goes back to 1996. We've got to go way back. And as part of those, we've got to bring journal literature online and make it more available. We need to have books that are more available, the music, the movies, things that are way out of print, the things that are still being hawked. Fine, go ahead, keep going at that. But it's a tiny percentage of whatever it is that happened. The idea that these few people that are making the money off of works that were done 50, 70 years ago, this tiny in comparison to the number of of people that are now being forgotten because of overzealous extensions of copyright. At least we're having one year come into the public domain, and the Internet Archive is celebrating this by going and making tens of thousands of books and movies and videos available from that crucial year. And we'll do it again year after year (laughs) after year. But it's a drop in the bucket. We need to make broader changes to be able to educate a generation that now turns to screens for questions. That's true. I mean, how many times do you sit around and you say, you know, who did win the World Series in 1958? And somebody says, I don't know. Let's ask Google. I'll Google that, you know. Right. So it becomes an extension of our brains. Brewster, this has been fabulous. Before we wrap this up, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about the Internet Archive and Wayback? Please use it. Archive.org and OpenLibrary.org are our resources for everybody. Please engage. Hit the upload button on Archive.org. Just try it. If you've got something, everybody's got something that can make it through the generations. We offer free hosting. 
If you have writings that you would like your kids to be able to see, if you've got whatever it is, save page now or go to the archive.org and upload your videos, your home videos, and make these things available or donate books. Well, we're doing a massive book drive. We need over a million books now to go and digitize to make available through Wikipedia links and the like. So we need everybody's help to go and build a great library. If Wikipedia is the encyclopedia of the Internet, we would like to be the library of the Internet. And so the address once again? Archive.org and OpenLibrary.org. It's free. Awesome. Please engage. Thank you, Cam. Thanks, Brewster. That was Brewster Kale. He's the founder of the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine. Now, to upload your files to archive.org, just head over to my website, commando.com, and in the search box, just type in Wayback Machine. That's two words, Wayback Machine. We're going to tell you how you can sign up for a virtual library card and then upload your content to archive.org. And a special thank you goes out to Brewster Kale for sharing his story and his time with us on this podcast. It was a lot of fun. Now, if you want to try the Wayback Machine... I don't know why I'm telling you how to do this, because I'm just asking for ridicule. I know this. Uh, go ahead, type my website, commando.com, in the search bar, and then you can see the evolution of my website. Oh, my hair. Oh, my gosh. It actually goes back to when I was spelling computer with a K. Sorry about that. I'm America's digital pro, Kim Commando. Now, I hope you got as much as podcasts as we did here in the studios, put it all together. That's one of the perks of working here, that we get paid to learn, and then we share that knowledge with you. Okay, your part is to pay it forward. It's free, so why not share this podcast, like it, and listen, if you have a topic that you'd love for us to explore and investigate, just let us know. And heck, if you have a question about something digital, I can help you with. Call 602-212-0058. Leave me your question and your contact information. That number again, 602-212-0058. I'll talk to you then.